when we ask why. For the last couple of weeks, we've been delving into this question these times when we ask why. And I'm not talking about like why is the sky blue and, 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 and things like that, but God, why, why are you letting this happen to me? Why am I facing this? Why am I going through this? We've had those times, right? I've been at Fellowship of Faith 14 years now. And in that time, I've gotten to know a, a lot of people, a lot of you who come here. And in that time, I've gotten to know some of the struggles and some of the problems that you face. And when I think about Fellowship of Faith, I see people who have faced and are facing real-life struggle. I've gotten to know people who, who feel like they're holding on by a thread. People who feel like their families are holding on by a thread. I've gotten to know people who are struggling with their past in deep, deep ways, and the regret that comes from it, the shame that often follows them out of it. I've gotten to know people who are dealing with deep sin issues, Things that have led them on a trajectory to where they are today and things that they're facing today that just weigh on them. I've met people that are struggling with addiction. I've met people that are struggling with, with emotional and mental disease. I've met people who, who physically are broken and are falling apart, who are health nightmares. I've met people who are financial nightmares, not knowing where the next bill is going to get paid from, and even people on the verge of homelessness. I've met people who have been deep in spiritual struggle, feeling like, what can God do with me anymore? Has God given up on me? He has shelved me. What's my purpose? What's my call? Where am I headed? And guys, I'm not even talking beyond our staff yet. When I think of the people at Fellowship of Faith, I see people who have faced deep life struggle, and it is so natural to wonder, if not even wonder aloud, why? Why? Because when you're in those points of pain, it screams, doesn't it? It screams everything out. It takes 100% of your focus in the here and now and what you're facing, and there's very little room for anything else to have a say. We've been there. Which is why I want to very intentionally shift the question today. And the question is going to seem odd in the face and in the times of dealing with evil. It's not going to make sense. But it's a question that I hope today that if you're here and you know, you're, you're in this place of struggling with evil or struggling with suffering or feeling pain that you can consider asking. And the question is this. God, why are you so good to me? 
Have you ever in a million years met someone who's in a place of just that extreme pain, struggling with the question why of going, huh, God, why are you so good to me in this right now? It's crazy. It doesn't make any sense. But today I want to very intentionally challenge you to consider this question in the face of evil, in the face of struggling, in the face of pain. God, why are you so good to me? Because if you step back from just a moment, why should we even expect him to be? I mean, have you ever kind of just come to this baseline? Why should God care about you at all? Why should God give a rip? Why should we assume that the universe should be based in something good and be favorably disposed? You know, the pagan religious systems of old, they never thought there was gods who loved them. You bribed the gods or you bought them off. You tried to keep them at bay. There was no sense that the gods would be good to me. Why is it that we assume God should be good to us to begin with? Why should God even care? Why is asking the question, why, even valid to begin with? And the Bible is filled with the challenge of this question in the face of struggling and evil. It's filled with the challenge to ask the question and to reorient ourselves, to ask instead, God, why are you so good to me? Let me share one with you. This comes from a psalm. I left my Bible down here. This comes from a psalm. It's Psalm chapter 8. And the psalm writer is, is just pondering and coming face to face with the glory and the wonder and the power of God. And he's looking up at the heavens. You can almost imagine him like looking up and seeing just, just the immensity and diversity and, and, and wonderment of God's creation. And considering how that's just kind of like a, a fleck of the goodness and glory and wonderment of the God who created it. This is what he says. He goes, Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. And then he gets into this and he asks, when I consider your heavens, when I consider the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you've set in place. Here it is. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man. The sons of humanity. And daughters too. That you even bother to care for them. You've made them lower than the heavenly beings. And crowned them with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the work of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and all that swim the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Are you following the logic of this? He's sitting here looking at the glory of the universe, the power of the universe, and comparing himself 
to it. Who here shines with the might and power of a star? And how many billions of them fill our one galaxy alone? Who here has the glory and wonder of the things that we experience in the world? God made this. Why does he care about me? What is humanity? That you're even mindful, that you even pay attention, Lord. Who are these sons and daughters of humanity? that you even care for them to begin with. Back to the question. God, why are you so good to me? You know, I, I've come to, to really discover that the degree to which people suffer seems to have nothing to do with their response to that suffering. You would think people who suffer more would struggle more, wouldn't you? And people who suffer less would have an easier time asking this question, why are you so good to me? But I found actually the exact opposite to be the case. I have met people who have faced major, major suffering. And they come through it and come outside of it or even lose their lives in the midst of it with this on their lips. And I've met other people who have had lives of relative ease, healthy, taken care of, good family, opportunity, even good-looking. Life has dished them up well. And yet they find themselves plunged in some existential crisis and victim mentality of always going, why me? Why me? Why do I have to face this? Now, this is an overgeneralization, of course. It doesn't always work this way. I've also met some people who have suffered deeply and asked that question, why? And I've met other people who have had lives of ease, who have said, God, why are you so good to me? But what I have discovered is that the degree to a person's suffering does not seem to dictate how they approach God in the midst. I want to introduce you to three people today. Three people that have become inspirational to me in this, three people who embody what I think it is to struggle with evil and found themselves in this place instead asking, God, why are you so good to me? Let me introduce you to the first. Her name is Corrie Ten Boom. Corrie Ten Boom is Dutch. She was a watchmaker. Which is such a cool trade, isn't it? A watchmaker just like her dad. And she lived in Europe during World War II. Corrie ten Boom lived in the Netherlands, and of course the Nazis invaded and occupied the Netherlands in 1940. In 1942, she recounts in her biography how there was a knock on their door 
And they open the door, and here standing is this well-dressed woman with a suitcase in her hand that they had never met. And she simply says this, I heard that you helped my neighbor. I heard that you helped my neighbor who was Jewish. And the occupational forces have come to my home. They've arrested my husband. They've interrogated me, and I'm afraid to go back. Can I stay with you? I, like, what do you do, guys? You go home from, from this today. And you go home and you're breaking out some lunch and there's a knock at your door and there's some well-dressed woman with a suitcase in her hand that you've never met standing at your door saying, can I stay with you? Uh-uh. And what do you do when it's illegal? And what do you do when if it's found out there could be ramifications for you that only the sickest of humanity could ever dream. So her father, Casper, which is a phenomenal name, does what's only natural in those kinds of situations, right? Come on in. And it begins a two-year journey for the family of working with the Dutch resistance and underground taking in Jews who are fleeing for their lives, hiding them away, giving them ration cards, supporting them, and trying to get them out to freedom when they can. Until 1944, when a Dutch collaborator sells them out and reports them and they opened the door at 12.30 p.m., she said, the, the time just riveted in her mind with the Nazis standing there around their house and the entire Ten Boom family is arrested that day. Six Jews, six Jews at the moment happened to be hidden away in the home and she later discovered that they fortunately went undetected but of the family who was living in the Ten Boom house, six died in the arrest and aftermath from it that day. This woman recounts the story of what it was like to live at the mercy of the Nazis. She was brought into solitary confinement for several months, after which was tribunal to interrogation to tribunal to interrogation, which eventually graduated to prison, which eventually graduated to a woman's work camp, which eventually graduated to a concentration camp for her. And she writes about how she and her sister found herself in this Nazi concentration camp, secretly conducting worship services with a Bible that they had smuggled in, worshiping the God that they believed was so good to them. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? She recounts how her and her sister began to dream of what they would do when they got out, if they got 
out. And how they wanted to open up a place and a home for those with, with, with mental and developmental disabilities that the Nazis were exterminating top to bottom as part of their eugenics program and open up a place to just love them and help them and, and get them back on their feet. It was never realized between the two of them because her sister died in that concentration camps, particularly at the hand of one particularly cruel guard. And then fortunately, coincidentally, or maybe better put, providentially, there was a clerical mishap and she was set free shortly before VE Day in Germany. And she got to work. She wanted to see that dream that she and her sister had realized and she opened up a center ministering not only to those with developmental disabilities but to Jews as well who had faced the most horrible of things helping them to find their feet in their life and a future as well she recounts the story of coming face to face in 1946 with two of those guards that she suffered under one who had his hand in the death of her sister, filled with that anger and that rage and that question of what I do in this moment, and yet being prompted by God to forgive him. Not just up here, but face to face in a personal way. And the story of her life became a legacy rooted in someone who did not choose to stay and asking the question why but shifted instead to serving the God who she believed was so good to her. What sense, what sense does this make? I want to read you a few quotes from her today. A few things she wrote about and spoke about along the way. I love this one. She says, Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. She writes, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. She writes this, I love this one. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and you trust the engineer. She writes, forgiveness is an act of the will and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart she says, let God's promise shine on your problems. She says, faith is like a radar that sees through the fog. This is the legacy of a woman who chose to ask the question instead, why is God so good to me? Let me introduce you to someone else. Her name is Johnny Erickson Tata, the youngest daughter of four, 
named after her dad, so it is Johnny, not Joni. Lucky her. Born in 1969. 1949, excuse me. Born in 1949, and she was a woman who was active and loved life. You ever meet those people who just love to suck the marrow out of life? Experiencing new things, trying new things, adventuresome, daring, stupid at times, but they live. You know what I mean? She recounts a life of hiking and climbing and skiing and boating and a horseback riding and lived it to the full until one fateful day around the age of 18 or maybe 19 years old when she was cliff diving. And she misjudged the shallowness of the water. And she dove in and never swam again. Severing C4 and C5 and rendering her a permanent quadriplegic. She writes about how those first two years she sat in therapy, how this deep darkness and depression enveloped her. She writes about the struggle she had, the hatred for herself and the way things played out in the universe, the anger that consumed her without a place to place it. She writes about the depression and the suicidal thoughts that she could never even act upon. She writes about the spiritual doubts that came right alongside and the personal existential crisis wallowing in why me. Interestingly enough, through that same two-year period of occupational therapy, she also learned how to paint with her teeth and how to write with her teeth in the day before you could just Get someone to click a cell phone for you and record. And interestingly enough, during that time, some of her paintings and some of her writings even began to be sold. And something started to shift in her. A shift from asking the question, why, to asking the question, God, why are you so good to me? She started a foundation. She began to speak and write and give hope to other people in the same place, struggling with the same kind of things and what she found in that God. Today, she has books written in more languages than I can even start to recount. She's a national speaker. She set up a foundation. She ministers to people who find themselves in that same place of struggling. And you will be hard-pressed to find a single Christian radio station in this country that does not have her on at some point within a 24-hour period. In 1982, she gets married as a quadriplegic. Probably at one point asking that question, who could ever want, who will ever take someone like me? In the 2000s, she gets cancer. And as a quadriplegic, faces not only mastectomy, but chemotherapy. 
and the horrors that go with that. But she's still speaking and writing and teaching and loving today. Let me share a few things that Johnny has to say. She writes, Sometimes God allows what we hate to accomplish what he loves. I like that. Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Or how about this? Heartbreak forces us to embrace God out of desperate, urgent need. God is never closer than when your heart is aching. How about this? There is nothing that moves a loving father's soul quite like his child's cry. Or this, we will stand amazed to see the top side of the tapestry and how God beautifully embroidered each circumstance into a pattern for our good and his glory. But I think the one that strikes me most is this. He has chosen not to heal me but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer the embrace. Maybe the truly handicapped people are the ones that don't need God as much. Let me introduce you to one final person today as well. This one's a pastor. His name is Martin Luther King, Jr. Many people don't realize today, as he's become a national celebrity, that it was his religious convictions and spiritual moorings in Jesus that guided his path every step of the way. And for those of us who weren't alive, to experience what it was like in his time, it can be hard to forget what he exactly faced. Today, he's a national celebrity. He even gets a holiday. We get out of school for this man. But in his day, he was hated, spit on and ridiculed and threatened and beaten, and not just by people on the street, but by the government and the police. He knew what it was like to have dogs sick down him. He knew what it was like to be shot with a fire hose. He knew what it was like to be beaten in the street. He knew what it was like to be imprisoned. Without much hope of legal recourse, wondering what might happen in a dark cell in a southern prison at night. And it was the 13th time that he was arrested. Can you imagine that, 13 times? It was the 13th time he found himself imprisoned in a city called Birmingham, Alabama, that he wrote a letter that has kind of gone down in history and has become even sort of a manifesto called The Letter from the Birmingham Jail. And just listen to a few things he had to say. The early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. 
In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. And then he says, if you can't fly, then run. And if you can't run, then walk. And if you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, you have to keep moving forward. See, the difference between why God, why, and why is God so good to me has nothing to do with the degree of suffering. It comes down to this, and there's no getting around this one, guys. It comes down to the choice you choose to make. It is a choice of which attitudinal difference you will take. Why me? Or why is God so good to me? And don't hear me wrong. These people suffered. None of this is to make light of suffering. You suffer too, and it's real, and it's hard, and it's ugly, and it's deep. Saying, why is God so good to me is not a way of taking it lightly or brushing it away or acting like it doesn't matter. No, to the contrary, it's because it doesn't brush away and because it does matter. We say, why is God so good to me in spite of our suffering, in defiance of our suffering? Because each and every one of us have a choice to make. And there's no getting around this one. You can't avoid it. Someone else can't make it for you. It doesn't matter how young or how old you are. Will you be a person in the face of suffering and struggling with evil who stays stuck in why me? Or will you dare to trust a God who has promised to be good and shift your perspective instead and say, God, why are you so good to me? And the choice you make is going to make all the difference in the path you take. There was this early follower of Jesus. His, his, his name was Paul, and he was no stranger to suffering. Let me just give you a taste as he recounted on one instance of what he had to face. He says this, I have worked so hard, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again And again, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Why would you get on a boat after the first time? I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from foreigners, 
in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from, from those who claim to be my friends and my brothers and yet secretly betray me. I've labored and toiled. I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and I've often gone without food. I've been cold, naked, and beside everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? And it leads him in this story to cry out, why? He says, three times I pleaded with God, pleaded with him, make it better. Take it away. Here's what God said. No. My grace, is, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Whatever you face, my grace is sufficient for you. Whatever your struggle, my grace is sufficient for you. Whatever your pain, my grace is sufficient. Whatever evil you face, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul had a choice to make. Stay victimized by his suffering, crying out, why me, in his pain? Or choosing a different way? And so this is what he has to say. Therefore, I will boast. I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. I will brag about them so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness. I delight in insult and hardship. I delight in persecution. I delight in difficulties. Because he's nuts. Maybe. Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It was how he chose to view his reality. It's my prayer for you, for me, because I struggle with this. That when you find yourself in that place, that you shift from why, which is a good question, but will take you nowhere, and shift instead to why, God, are you so good to me? So the band is going to come up, and they're just going to lead us in a short time as we conclude this today to... step into that attitudinal shift with God. A chance to sing about the goodness of God. A chance to acknowledge it, to choose it, and to take that path.
And as we get ready for this, I want to encourage you to pray. Um, If we could, let's just rise. And just for a few moments, as they start to get ready, I want to invite you individually to pray. And I want you to pray today in one very specific way. I want you to talk to God and answer the question to him, God, how have you been good to me? Crowd everything else out of your mind. God, how are you being good to me?